Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. As a church family, we are currently studying verse by verse through the New Testament book of 1 Peter. And currently, we are in a series within that study of 1 Peter entitled, The People of God. And we looked at this verse in 1 Peter a couple weeks ago, but I want to read it for us as we begin, just to remind ourselves of what we're talking about. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes this, Speaking of believers... He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are the people of God. For the past five weeks, we've been looking at a big idea that has really helped us get our heart around what we're talking about when we say that we are the people of God. And as we start this morning, I want us to look at that statement again. We've kind of divided it into two parts, and I want us to look at it together this morning. Here's the first part. It says, as the people of God, we are who we are because of who Jesus is. I love that. There's such a statement of identity that we live the, the way that we live. We are who we are as believers, as children, as sons, as daughters, as followers, because of Him. And then we've added this second part that we've been living in for the past few weeks. And I want us to read the second part out loud together like you got an extra hour sleep last night. All right, let's read this on three. One, two, three. And who we are in Him shapes how we live. We've been living there. and We've been talking about what does it look like as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, to function in society. And for the past few weeks, we've been living there. We looked at what does it look like for a believer to submit to authority? What does it look like for a believer to relate to people who don't share what we believe? Last week, Pastor Tom unpacked what it looks like for a believer to function in the workplace. So if you have a Bible this morning, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And in just a moment, I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. This week, Peter's going to address something that I don't know for you, but I know for me, is something that I really struggle with. And anytime it's addressed in Scripture or I have a conversation around it, I really have some mixed emotions. And today as we look at the Bible, I hope it can breathe some clarity for us so that you and I don't live our lives frustrated with God 
about this certain area just because we don't understand it. Here's what Peter's going to lay out for us today. He's going to lay out that when it comes to following Jesus, being treated unfairly or suffering is not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's a matter of when it's going to happen. And I hope that this text will really clarify for us and allow us this morning to process together this this reality that if we follow Jesus in society, we will be mistreated. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to begin reading in verse 21. The Bible says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. As we think about being a follower of Jesus in a society that is spiritually dead and spiritually dark, there are some things that we just need to understand. And I found a stat this week that, honestly, it's pretty heavy. And it's this. It was given by the World Christian Encyclopedia. And they said, based on their research... There have been 70 million martyrs, people who were killed for their faith since the time Jesus was on the earth. That's sobering. That's heavy. And that doesn't include the millions upon millions of people who were treated wrongly, who were abused, who lost relationships, who lost jobs, who were looked down upon because of their faith. And what I want to do this morning to to just help us process that, because honestly, there are some days I don't even know how to feel about that. What I want to do out of this text is I want to give you two words. Two words that I hope as you follow Jesus while living in society... These two words will be burned on your heart. And in a moment when maybe you are mistreated or you're suffering or you experience something that's undeserved, I hope that in that moment those two words will rise to the surface and you'll hold on to them. So two words out of this text that I want us all to remember as we follow Jesus and live in society. Here's the first word. Calling. 
the first major principle in this text has to do with calling. He begins in verse 21 by saying, For you have been called. This word called is a powerful word. It means to be summoned or invited for a special benefit or experience. Peter's beginning by telling these believers, listen, you've been invited by God for a special benefit. You've been been summoned by God for a special experience, letting us know that in whatever capacity we are called by God, it is a privilege, not a punishment. And that's really important to understand, especially when we're talking about something as heavy as we are today. That in any capacity, when you and I are are called by God, it's a privilege. It's not a punishment. If we had the time this morning to survey the New Testament of other references to this idea of being called or invited or summoned, we would find some statements like this in the Scriptures. We are called out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We are called to freedom. We are called into fellowship with Jesus. We are called to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We are called to be holy in all our behavior. We are called to receive an eternal inheritance. That's this idea of being called that Peter begins with in verse 21. But the verse continues. He says, but you have been called for this purpose. Now it's very important this morning that we are absolutely clear about what purpose is being referred to. He's referring backwards in the text to verse 20. So look with me back at verse 20 in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, basically indicating if you make a mistake or you make a bad decision and you suffer because of it, what, what does it matter? But then he goes on. He says, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Here's what he's communicating As our purpose, what we've been called to as believers. We are called to follow Jesus in a world that is spiritually dead. And as we pursue righteousness, we will be treated unfairly. Sobering. Remember, to be called by God in any capacity is a privilege, not a punishment. And he's identifying one aspect of our calling to follow Jesus is that in a society that is spiritually dark and spiritually dead, we will be mistreated. And if you really think about it, that only makes sense. You see, our society worships one way, makes decisions one way, talks one way, thinks one way. For us as believers... We function in those areas totally differently. We live in a different realm. We function from a different standard. We follow Jesus. And so as we function among the society that we live in, 
It only makes sense that we would be looked down upon, that we would suffer, that we would be persecuted, suffer for following Jesus. Now, it begs to be said this morning that he's not referring to people who suffer because they made a bad decision. He's specifically addressing believers who, because they choose to follow righteousness, because they choose to seek to honor God with their lives, they experience undeserved suffering. I love what Warren Wiersbe said. This is such a powerful statement. He said, Jesus proved that a person could be in the will of God, be greatly loved by God, and still suffer unjustly. Let that, let that settle for a moment. Because what normally happens when we experience any type of undeserved suffering, the first thing we do is we think we've done something wrong before God. And we ask the question, God, why are you mad at me? God, why are you disappointed in me? Well, I think we would all agree, the Father loved the Son. Yet the Son experienced undeserved suffering. It is possible to be in the center of the will of God, greatly loved by God, and still suffer unjustly. And I know the topic today is heavy. And I don't expect us to leave the service this morning cheering and yelling with excitement. But here's what I've been praying this week. I've been praying that God would, would, would move our hearts closer from wherever we are currently to considering it an honor to suffer on behalf of Jesus. I think there's no better example of this than the man who wrote the book that we're studying, Peter. If you look in the Gospels and you follow the life of Peter, you'll see early on when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter was the first one to grab a sword and start swinging it at soldiers' heads. He says, I don't want anything to do with suffering. It's horrible. If you continue to follow his life, you'll see him when Jesus was being arrested. They came to Peter and said, hey, you're with Jesus. You associate, you follow Jesus. And Peter said no. And on multiple occasions, he swore he had nothing to do with Jesus. Thinking once again that to suffer in any capacity on his behalf was horrible. But then you find Peter at the end of his life in AD 60 in Rome. And Nero sentences Peter to be killed. And they say, kill Peter the way they killed the one he followed, crucify him. And Peter, when he's about to be crucified, said this, don't crucify me in the same way you crucified Jesus. Crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to be killed the same way that he was. You see this, this, this transition. You see Peter early in his life saying, I don't want anything to do with it. To be mistreated, to suffer on behalf of Christ, that's horrible. But you see him at the end of his life saying, what an honor that you would count me worthy to suffer on your behalf for the sake of your gospel. And so that's what I've been praying all week, is that as we wrestle through this text together, that we would, we would move closer to seeing it as honor 
and further away from seeing it as a horrible thing. First word, calling. Second word out of this text is the word Christ. Calling Christ. I hope as we function in society, those two words would be burned on our heart. The calling that we have as believers and the one we are following, Jesus Christ. There's a couple pieces here I want us to see about Christ. The first thing I want us to notice is his radical response to suffering. Look at the next part of verse 21. It says, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. You see, Jesus' choice to suffer and his response to undeserved suffering set a tone for us as his followers about what it was supposed to look like. And there are two really powerful phrases here. The first one is this, leaving you an example. There are so many unbelievable word pictures in the New Testament. And this phrase has an incredible word picture. It's a picture of a child being taught how to write. And it's the idea that the teacher would give them one piece of paper that has a number or a letter written correctly on it. And then the teacher would give the child a blank piece of paper that they could lay over the other one and simply trace the number or letter that was written correctly. So that child would learn how to write. Well, in the same way, Jesus is saying here, watch the way that I suffered. That's what it's supposed to look like to respond to undeserved suffering in your life. Another phrase here that is so powerful is the phrase, follow in his steps. If you can think about a place that maybe has snow and you've seen someone walk in that snow, what do they leave? They leave footprints. And you could very well follow those footprints and literally walk in the path that they walked in. Jesus is saying here, I as your teacher want to show you what suffering looks like. So that you can follow in my path. And that path includes undeserved suffering. Now I want us all just to be clear this morning. No one is going to die or suffer the way that Jesus did. You see Jesus as the son of God took on the sin of humanity as the perfect sacrifice for all sin past, present, and future. He's not asking that of us. We're not to do that. But we do understand as we walk according to his teaching, we will experience undeserved suffering. Then he goes on in verse 22, and he begins to talk about how Jesus responded to suffering. The first part of verse 22 says this, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. I believe that section gives us one of the radical responses of Jesus to suffering. I wrote it this way. In the midst of undeserved suffering, Jesus did not deny the truth. 
in the midst of being treated unfairly, there was never one moment when Jesus walked away or denied what he knew to be true. There was never a moment of dishonesty. There was never a moment of manipulation. There was never a moment of untruth. There's a really powerful story in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 26 where Jesus is before the chief priests. And what they're trying to do is to pin him to the wall and say that he had blasphemed God. And they bring in witnesses to lie about him. They get in his face and call him some bad things. They slap him, they beat him. But there there was never one moment in that story where Jesus denied what he knew to be true. And I was thinking about that story this week in Matthew chapter 26. And there's some things about Jesus that I think are just really powerful, that regardless to what degree you, you suffer or what degree you are being treated unfairly, I think there are some principles that, that we can apply that are so amazing about the life of Jesus. One of those is this. In that story in Matthew chapter 26, never once did Jesus make an emotional decision in the moment. It's really easy when we're treated unfairly to get emotional and make a decision in the moment that could cost us our testimony or our witness before other people. I was telling the guys this morning before the service just how inadequate I feel to even talk about suffering as a believer. I I don't feel adequate. I don't feel like there's anything I can base it off on other than looking to the authority of Scripture. But there is one moment in my life where I feel like I got a little, a little glimpse about what it means to be treated unfairly. I was in North Africa, and we were leading a conference for about 500 pastors and leaders at basically a compound. It was a large establishment with huge concrete walls all the way around it. And the government showed up and said, as long as you guys are worshiping Jesus at this compound, we will no longer let you have electricity. So hot water, obviously lighting, you know, you name it, we were not getting it. And the owner of the establishment had went down to the power company, so to speak, and gave them a check to say, hey, this should take care of it. They just took his money and said, have a good day. And I'm sitting there talking to him, and I'm thinking about these 500 leaders there in North Africa who had paid money traveled a long way, sacrificed a lot to be there because really for them, it's the only training they get for the whole year. And I'm sitting there talking to this guy and I'm emotional. I'm ready to do something. I don't know what I want to do, but I'm ready to do something because I'm mad. Because I'm thinking to myself, these believers deserve better. I'll get over it. I'm going to get on a plane and go back to my comfort. But for them, they deserve better. And he looked at me and he said, Pastor, This isn't the first time, and it won't be the last time. He said on multiple occasions, the government has showed up at this compound with bulldozers and began tearing down the walls because they so disagree with the ministry that we do here. It won't be the first time, and it won't be the last time. And I saw in him that day something that wasn't in me, and that was this expectation that if I follow the teachings of Jesus, I will be mistreated because of it. It shocked me, to be honest with you. 
But for him, he said, why would we not be? What we do, the way we live, the one we worship, is so radically different than everything that is in the world. And I don't know your situation, but let me encourage you. As you are treated unfairly, don't make an emotional decision in the moment that could hinder your witness or your testimony. I think that's so powerful about the life of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26. Another thing that I notice is that Jesus did not change his story in order to please others. He didn't change his story. All he probably had to say in Matthew 26 was, yeah, none of that's true. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one sent from God. And it would have changed. But Jesus clung to what he knew to be true and didn't compromise his story. Another thing that I noticed about Jesus is this. He did not justify an action in order to take the easy road. He didn't say, well, just this one time, I'm going to compromise because it'll be easier. Or I can avoid pain. He was consistent and he never denied the truth. The tendency of our flesh is to be emotional, change the story, or justify our actions. But Jesus never did in the midst of being treated unfairly. And I know in 2015 that both locally and globally, we have brothers and sisters who are experiencing this. The last service, I asked the people in the room who felt as though they were being treated unfairly in some capacity to raise their hand. And there were people all over the room that I got to pray for last service. I'm going to do that again during this service. It's happening locally, but it's also happening globally. I read an article this week by the Gospel Society Herald. They said this, Many Christians in the West either deny or are ignorant of it. But persecution is part of present reality. Countries in which Christians are most at risk are Iraq. In Iraq, they say, leave, pay, convert, or die. India, expect more persecution. China, no more Bibles, no more churches. North Korea, hide your faith or die. This is a reality for us as believers that we need to be aware of that should break our heart. But in the midst of undeserved suffering, like so many people are experiencing today who follow Jesus, Jesus in the same scenario did not deny the truth. The second radical response that I see in 1 Peter from Jesus is this. In the midst of undeserved suffering, Jesus did not retaliate. He didn't retaliate. He didn't offer threats. He didn't say what he was going to do. He didn't say things to make them fearful. There's another example of this in Matthew chapter 27, where Jesus is before the governor, and every year they would release one prisoner. And they went before the people to say, who do you want us to release? Jesus, who has blasphemed God by his teaching, or Barabbas, a very prominent criminal? The crowd begins to shout, give us Barabbas. So they release Barabbas and the governor says, what do you want to do with Jesus? They said, crucify him. 
Can you imagine as Jesus stood before these people that he knew he was about to go to the cross to die for their sin as they yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. And never once in the midst of that did Jesus retaliate. Did he offer up threats? It's an amazing demonstration of a right response to undeserved suffering. Jesus was hated. He was accused of being a rebel. This was done by key and influential leaders in society. It was done in a very public way. It was done in order to alienate him from his friends. This was done with most cutting and severe sarcasm. So here's the question. How was that possible? How did Jesus walk through that undeserved suffering and still respond rightly? Well, the Bible continues in verse 23. It says, But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This word entrust is a word that means to commit or to hand over. Kenneth Wiest said it means to deliver something to someone to keep, use, take care of, or manage. Dr. Wiest goes on to say this, Our Lord kept on delivering over to God both the revilers and their reviling as both kept on wounding his loving heart. A word that we're probably more familiar with would be the word surrender. That on a continual basis, Jesus was surrendering over every dimension of his life. He surrendered thoughts, attitudes, reputation, relationships, safety, emotions, habits, pain. And the list could go on and on. And it was continual for him. Throughout his entire ministry, he was continually being reviled. He was continually not reviling in return. And he was continually submitting himself, surrendering over every aspect of his life to God. John MacArthur says it this way. With each new wave of abuse, as it came again and again and again, Jesus was always handing himself over to God for safekeeping. Luke records how that pattern continued until the very end. This is powerful. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Undergirding Jesus' peaceful, resolute acceptance of suffering was an unshakable confidence in the perfectly righteous plan of him who judges righteously. That's what it looked like for Jesus. There was a continual handing over of every dimension of his life as he walked through undeserved suffering. I wrote it this way in my notes. Jesus was perfect, yet he did not act on his own behalf to expedite his longing for justice. But instead, moment by moment, he handed those longings over to God in faith. That's what we see here from Christ. That's what we see here as a radical response to suffering. He never denied the truth. He never offered up threats. But he handed over every dimension 
to the one who judges righteously. I think it's very easy for us as believers to think that if we react in some way, if we make our own decisions in the midst of what's going on, that we can somehow have a greater impact than the righteous judge, God the Father. But that's wrong. Jesus understood that was the best response, and we must understand that that's the best response. The second thing about Christ that I want us to look at as we conclude today is not only his radical response to suffering, but his radical invitation to the world. Look at verse 23. The Bible goes on to say, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. There are two invitations in those verses that are just unbelievable that our king has offered to the world. Here's the first one. Christ invites us to die to sin. He invites us to die to sin. The very thing that has corrupted the world, the very thing that has separated us from a relationship with God, Christ invites us, you see it in this passage, he has taken on our sin, the weight of sin on himself, so that we might find forgiveness of that sin and count it as dead. John MacArthur went on to say this, Christ died for believers to separate them from sin's penalty. So it can never condemn them. The record of their sins, the indictment of guilt that had them headed for hell was nailed to the cross. Jesus paid their debt to God in full. In that sense, all Christians are freed from sin's penalty. That's the first unbelievable invitation, is that in Christ we can find forgiveness. We can find a reality in which we can deny the sin that has plagued us because we find forgiveness of sin in Jesus. But as you probably know, we need more than just forgiveness of sin. It's not enough just for the slate to be wiped clean. We also need life. And that's the second invitation of Jesus in this passage. Not only to die to sin, but also Christ invites us to live to righteousness. It's not enough just to be forgiven. We also need life. And Jesus says here, you can have that life in a relationship with me. He is our life. When we put our faith in his finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we can have eternal life in him. And as we think about our response to suffering, we ask the question, I could never do what Jesus did. I completely agree with you. But it's not up to you to do what Jesus did. Through the Holy Spirit of God, his life is now in you. And he is ready and waiting to respond through your life, through the Spirit of God. Major Ian Thomas said it this way. It is not a matter of our doing our best for him. But of Christ being his best in us. All that he is in all that we are. The Christian life is nothing less than the life which he lived then, live now by him in you. 
if you're anything like me, you read about the life of Jesus in the Bible and you're blown away by it. You're blown away by it. The things he taught, the things he did, the way he carried himself. Well, here's the gospel. Now, because of his grace, his very life is in us. So I don't have the pressure of thinking, okay, I have to mimic Jesus and the way he responded. No, his life is now in us, and he desires to live through us as we experience undeserved suffering. He is our life. But not only that, he's our righteousness. The Bible says, you're to die to sin, but live to righteousness. You see, in order to have a relationship with God, we must be righteous. Guess what? I'm not righteous. You're not righteous. But Christ is righteous. And so when we put our faith in him, when we are found in him, his righteousness is then given to us so that we can have a relationship with God. Paul wrote it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As you think about your situation, what you're walking through, and you think about the life of Jesus, I want to close by sharing with you what Dick Woodward refers to as the four spiritual secrets. I believe they are just great statements to have fresh on our hearts as we live in society every day. Here's what he said, four statements. I'm not, but he is. I can't, but he can I don't want to, but he wants to. I didn't, but he did. There's this unbelievable dynamic of the gospel. We sang about it earlier. But Christ in me. Every week of this series, we have, or the past few weeks, we've given you a disclaimer at the end, and I want to give that to you again. We've said that in the midst of functioning in society, with bosses and government and all the other pieces, that as believers, we have, we have an ultimate authority and we have an ultimate mission. And what I'm not saying today is that if you are in a situation where you are being treated unfairly or you are experiencing some type of suffering, I'm not saying that you need to be silent what I am saying is that you don't need to be shocked. The scripture is very clear that as we follow Jesus, we will be treated unfairly. Now that doesn't mean that we don't need to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted for their beliefs. We need to pray for them. We need to do all we can to help them. I'm not saying we need to be silent, but I am saying we don't need to be shocked. I hope that in our time today, maybe God has, has moved your heart a little bit. Away from, I don't want anything to do with being treated unfairly for the sake of Christ. Potentially to a place of saying, wow, what, a, what an honor that I could suffer on his behalf. As a... As I was preaching last service, um, we got an email from um, our partner in Southeast Asia. And he asked us to pray for him. And he said that there are five pastors in that part of the world that 
a while back, got around a lady who had a disease. And they began to pray over her that God would heal her. Well, the government found out about it and took those five pastors straight to prison. And since that point, there's been something issued by the government that says this. The court has said now that all prayers calling on God for healing of any person is considered a crime and can be prosecuted. Those pastors don't deserve that. But they've made a decision that they are willing to be an alien here on earth for a little while so that they can be a citizen in the kingdom of God for eternity. And for you, you may not be someone who is, is facing jail time for praying over somebody. You may be somebody at your job who's just made fun of because you choose to follow Jesus. You may be somebody at your school who is treated unfairly just because you try to be a gospel witness to the people around you. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Here's what I want you to hear me say today. God sees you and he is with you. And what you're suffering for, what you're being treated unfairly for, it's worth it. It's worth it. 